Martial Arts World Radio is the official radio show and podcast of The Factory Martial Arts Boxing and Fitness at 450 Matheson Boulevard East, Unit 44, Mississauga, Ontario. Check us out at www.factorygrindgym.com. This is Olympic Taekwondo silver medalist Nia Abdallah. You are listening to Martial Arts World Radio with Joseph Clark. Welcome to Martial Arts World Radio. I'm your host, Joseph Clark. Each episode, we feature many of the best fighters in the world from the UFC, Bellator, the Olympics, as well as martial arts legends, pioneers, and cinema stars, as we share best practices and philosophies using martial arts as a metaphor for life's challenges, for training, and for competing. Over the next hour, I will feature interviews with professional MMA fighter Justin Bruckman, on fighting George St. Pierre, David Loiseau, and training tomorrow's champions. Also, my interview with a regular on the show, the legendary Bob Wall, on his first encounters with two gentlemen who eventually became very dear friends and training partners to him, Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris. And my interview with Michael Masuda, president of the world-famous, one-of-a-kind Martial Arts History Museum. Welcome to our latest syndication network affiliates, MetaCafe, WorldNews.com, Radio.net, and CKLU 96.7 FM in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada. Welcome and thank you for carrying the show. A further welcome to our latest sponsor, Kayani Independent Consultant, Daniel Jarege. You can click on his advertisement at the show website at mawradio.com. Martial Arts World Radio is currently seeking sponsors. If you have a product or brand which you wish to advertise and promote to our over 1 million weekly global listeners, reach out to me at producer at mawradio.com. Our first interview is brought to you by Prospect Fighting Championships. Check them out at www.prospectfights.com. Justin Bruckman is a retired Canadian mixed martial artist who competed in the lightweight division. He won his last fight against Yoichi Fukamoto on November 12, 2004. Bruckman currently teaches Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at Bruckman Martial Arts in Oshawa, Ontario, Canada. During his career, he fought several tough competitors, including UFC future notable David Loiseau and world champion George St. Pierre. Justin, this is a privilege for us to have you as a guest. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Tell us about your fight against UFC great George St. Pierre. Uh, yeah, that's always the question everyone wants to hear. Um, that was a long time ago. It wasn't much of a fight. Like, you know, honestly, I was the champion uh, uh, at the time, and uh, George grabbed me and throttled me in about three minutes, and that was it. And, uh, to me at the time, it was a huge tragedy, but it ended up being, you know, a massive blessing for, uh, for me uh, in my career. And as a person, too, it definitely strengthened me and uh, made me really dedicate myself to my craft and improve. How long ago was that? Oh, man. Uh, I think it was 2002, maybe 2003, so a long time ago. A couple, he went off to the UFC a couple fights after that, and then he was champion not too long after that as well. And was that the only time you crossed paths with GSP? Uh, in the ring, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, uh, you know, uh, over the over the years, we bump into each other here and there. Like, he, that's about it. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, super nice guy, real humble, and always always gracious when, when we do meet each other for sure. And David Loiseau was also a UFC competitor, and the documentary film, The Striking Truth juxtaposes yep. both his and George St. Pierre's fight careers. Now, you beat David once, and then he beat you once. Would you share your experiences fighting David? Uh, you, you know what? It's both both very valuable. Uh, my first fight against him was, uh, that was my first professional matchup ever. And uh, I really, he's such a good guy, and we're good friends. So it was really, uh, you know, it was a good experience to share it with him. And, uh, and he got, a few months later, uh, he got me back. It was kind of weird. It was supposed to be a elimination tournament but i beat i think he may have been the favorite so i beat him in the first round and then all of a second we had this, the second round we had a rematch you know what i mean so i kind of got beat out of the tournament but i think he was favored to win. he went on to win i think he was favored to win but 
that's nothing to do with me. That's the promoter of the business. So, uh, you know what? Great experiences. I learned a lot from the loss and, and the win, and uh, and uh, and I took it, and it, it helped me throughout the rest of my life as well. So those fights with, uh, I mean, you, I'm sure you fought some really, really good fighters. How would you say the fight, for example, with George St. Pierre compared to some of the other fights in your professional career? Um, you know, uh, I, I think as I said it earlier, my, my matchup with George wasn't a fight. Like, he literally just beat me up. And if I fought George a hundred times, he would just beat me a hundred times. He's, uh, he's the greatest fighter to ever live. And I'd be happy that, you know, I got a chance to be in there with someone, you know, of that caliber. And, and, and who turned out to be such a success, too, because that guy, he really deserves it, you know. Um, I've, I'd like to say he's tough, but I never got to find out because, you know, it was it was one-sided. I, I fought, I fought tons and tons of tough guys. And uh, I really got to test him and test me, but uh, Jordan wasn't one of them because, like I said, it was just, it wasn't a fight. And you were seven wins, three losses in your professional career, correct? Yep. yep. What, what was your toughest fight? Um, two that stand out would have been uh, um, a man named Phil Hughes. Uh, I beat him for his Canadian championship, and he was just the toughest uh, dude I've ever met in my life. He was uh, just an awesome guy. He had, um, He's passed away now. He died of cancer a few years ago. But you know, oh, he was, I believe he, he he was a university professor in uh, music or something, and he just wanted to pick it up and try it. And he dedicated himself. And that guy was tough. I tried to murder him for twenty minutes, and he kept getting up with a smile. And uh, I think it was a huge honor to fight that guy as well. Like uh, just tough as nails. Um, the other the other man I would say is uh, I fought in in Tokyo in two thousand four. It was a guy named Yochi Yochi Fukumoto. And same thing, that was an absolute battle, and I, I got so much respect for that guy because I put it on him, and he just kept coming back for more. How was that Tokyo audience? Uh, I would fight in Japan a thousand times. It's so awesome there. It's uh, the country, the people, and their appreciation for the martial arts is so much different than it is here, you know. Um, North Americans are a little less educated on, on the martial arts and the technique, and they're a little more... It's a little more sports entertainment here, a little more bloodthirsty. Over there, it's, they really appreciate, you know, the honor and the and the attrition and the uh, and the technique that comes along with a with a good fight. Justin, what styles are you formally trained in? Um, I started my martial arts career in uh, in judo. I, I got my black belt in judo, and then I moved on, and I was cross training Brazilian jiu jitsu, on the second degree black belt in Brazilian jiu jitsu, and I've been training kickboxing like religiously for three or four years now as well with some really great coaches so i've been all over and i've wrestled i've been all over the place but like um my heart's always brazilian jiu-jitsu that's where i really like really fell in love with everything now you mentioned you've been all over the place would you share with us where some of your travels have gone to uh, uh for martial arts i mean uh anywhere i've been in the world has been because of martial arts not it's not i may have not gone to these countries and places to do martial arts, but it was martial arts that allowed me to travel all over the world. Uh, it changed my whole life. I, I never left my hometown, hometown until I put a gi on, and then next thing you know, I'm flying all over the planet. Uh, I got a lot of love for all the places I've been. I got to train all over Canada and the states, and and uh, in Japan while I was there, and just you know, martial arts makes everything better because it just gives you this automatic connection and camaraderie with people all over the world. So it's, I, I mean, I've been everywhere. I think I've hit 25 countries now just traveling and you know just living life have you fought in europe uh nope i've never when i go i go to europe every couple of years and i go for me i'm not i, I don't want to do martial arts while i'm there i'm going to eat and drink here and that's it did you fight in any other asian countries besides japan nope nope that was the only one i mean uh thailand's big on my list i'd like to get over there and train and, and mm-hmm. experience the culture as well but that's just something that hasn't lined up yet do you have a particular memorable moment? I'm going to put you on the spot here, but in your yeah, professional sure. career, do you have a, a particular memorable moment or experience that stands out? Um, I yeah, absolutely. When I when I, I have a lot of great crowning moments in my career as a competitor. Um, I have I actually have a photograph of me winning my first championship against Bill Hughes years and years ago, and it's captured just perfectly. And that was the best night of my life because to me growing up in the way and from my uh, background in the and and just where I came from there I never had and I never accomplished anything before. I've never finished a goal and uh, and I don't believe that I never expected much of myself and I don't think anyone else ever did either. 
and for, so for me, it was my match against Bill Hughes when I had my hands ready. That was, that was the best best day, best moment of my entire life. Still, how long was your amateur career before you went professional? Uh, when I was, I mean, I'm old as dirt, man. So, but there was when I was competing, there was no amateur. Like my very, I, we uh, we fought the very first UCC TKO or whatever it was. Is like one of the first shows ever in Canada. There was no amateur. There was no nothing. We showed up. Did our blood work and got the cage and got it done. That was it. I did some judo and jiu-jitsu and competitive in that scene, but as far as I'm made, there wasn't any. We just you just fought. So, Justin, did you do any full contact or point karate or anything like that before you got into MMA? Nope. Uh, no, not at all. I think like everything was grappling based for me, wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu. Uh, so no like no formal like boxing or kickboxing anything. For me, boxing and kickboxing has only been the last few years. Um, my first two, three probably professional fights, I hit a punching bag. Like we were, back then, it was just <laughs> tough guys who came from the. It was style versus style, you know what I mean. And uh, there, there was no amateur then. It was just a bunch of tough guys. I did all sorts of fights, but you know nothing you should really talk about. So. so, Justin, tell us about your personal philosophy when it comes to training and preparing for a fight. Um, me personally, uh, uh, man. I, you know what? You should, I, I, you gotta have fun. For me, what I uh, what I learned over the years is when it became a job and when it became stressful, I stopped growing and I stopped like as a fighter and as a person become stagnant. I think you need to, especially for young people, you need to find a balance in your life where you can enjoy training all the time, and you can't do that unless you take time off the mat and have something else for yourself, spend time with your friends and family because. It can it's a grueling career. It's really hard emotionally, physically, financially strain. So if you don't find a way early on in your career to bounce that out with other things that you love, you're going to burn out really fast. Uh, other than that, leave it on the mat, train hard, be conservative, and then training camp hits. you got to get it done. Surround yourself with positive people and work your ass off. So you mentioned there a moment ago that it's a hard career emotionally. How so? Oh. Uh, I mean, you know, the highs are extremely high and the lows are really low. Like, if uh, if if you never heard that door lock or that bell ring, it I, it can't really be explained to you. It's the greatest fifteen minutes of your existence being in there. And so, in everything you do, everything I did my whole life, all I've ever done is fight. Everything I've ever done is for that for that time in the cage or the ring. Every for the last eight weeks, every sip of water. Every bite of food, every time you get out of bed, every time you put on your shoes, all of that was just for that. And whether you win or lose, it doesn't matter. After that, it's over. And then you're sitting there wondering what to do next. And some people, some people deal with it much better than others. Speaking, uh, but I know for me, like the post fight depression is always really horrible. Like because you're you're so cranked and everything's so amazing you've won and everything was for that, and then it just stops. And then. You fall off your diet, and you're partying with your buddies, and you know it's you don't know what's coming next, what fight's coming next. You only made two hundred dollars. You do it. You're broke. You know what I mean. So the highs are extremely high. When you win a fight, it's the best thing in the world. When you lose, it's like someone, you know, it's like you lost your best friend. It's it's really difficult to deal with, especially when your your career comes to an end as well, which is something when you're young you don't think about. And when it happens, man, it's it's horrible. It's really for me especially other people might be different but it was it's been very difficult still it's interesting you mentioned that so i had a colleague who uh ran an iron man and he yeah. said the same thing he said that you know he trained everything was focused it was about that iron man and the training you know it was the journey that was so rewarding and then when the event was over he said it was really depressing and it took him quite a while to, to recover and a lot of marathon runners talk about that too so it's interesting that you mentioned that yeah, I think um, there's there's a quote I read that uh, it says "fighter dies twice." And that's uh, I'm 100. Um, I agree with that. I mean, when my career was over, I didn't know it was over. I I, I was injured in 2004, and I didn't know to the extent that I was until a little later on. So I didn't know my last fight was my last fight until later on when I realized I you know I had a spinal injury and I wasn't coming back. And and yeah, I died, man. Part of me died, and you know that's something. And then you got to figure out how to live your life after that and, and then fulfill it with other things, right? So, Justin, how did the spinal injury occur? Uh, you know, just 
career choice, just years and years of uh, abuse and not taking care of my body. A lot of it was, like, I heard it in judo early on. I think I, I, I did, like, four days of judo, and I did tournament, like, my first year of competition. And I, I think I hurt my neck the very first tournament I ever competed in, and I never addressed the issue because I was just young and stubborn and toughing it out. And it just got worse and worse. And then the, uh, before it was over, you know, uh, there was not much left in me. I'd, I'd, now I've had this uh, hurt, um, fused and, you know, I've had degenerative disc disease and all sorts of stuff, right? So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's yeah, this, man, if you don't take care of yourself as a young fighter and as a young person, you're going to pay for it later. And that's exactly uh, what happened to me. And that, that's my role now is, is to coach and to make sure that these young guys and girls are protected too because someone needs to protect these guys from themselves. Justin, what values do you try to instill in your students? Um, that's, that's a hard question, you know, because everyone that comes in the doors is a little bit different and some of them already have all the values you need and some of them teach me, you know. So um, work at, I personally believe work ethic is everything. That's one of the biggest things for me. You can be you can be tough or gifted athletically, but if you don't have the work ethic and the heart, then you're, you're going nowhere. Eventually, you're going to tank out. I think uh, that that's what um, my fighters show up first and leave last, and I think that's huge. Uh, work ethic is, is everything, and and, a good, and positive attitude all the time. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people come to the gym and, and they're negative, and like you're never going to succeed like that. You need to come in, work hard, and be, be happy about it, man. It's just an amazing opportunity for you to, to experience and see the world and compete and do amazing things. Now, Justin, as I understand it, you had a recent challenge with your gym. Would you please tell us about that? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I have, uh, I, I have a great job. I have the world's greatest job. It's just a little dream at some point, but my gym, um, I love it. My child, I built, uh, you know, I, I built it from nothing and uh, I walked in there almost three weeks ago and uh, a hot water tank rusted out and flooded absolutely everything I lost oh, dear. everything yeah so I mean every penny everything I've ever done in my life is for this place and I'm just and I've been sitting around my on my butt for three weeks now waiting for insurance to come through so uh and all my all my students are so loyal and so awesome everyone's kind of sitting back and and waiting and supporting me and uh so i'm hoping we're up and running in another two weeks because it's been tough like this is the busiest time of year and i'm not selling any membership so it's pretty scary stuff it is tough i'm sorry to hear about the flood and i do hope that they do get you up in time i'm glad to hear that you're insured but yeah that's an unfortunate event isn't it uh, yeah it is you know what though it's been uh for me um it's been a blessing in the skies and it really it really uh you know, I'm going to build a new facility. I'm going to make it run a bit better than ever. And, uh, you know, it's given me a, uh, a real eye-opener on how much uh, my community cares for me. Like, the phone calls and emails and support from, like, everywhere. Not just where I live in Oshawa and my teammates, but, but other schools and people that I don't even normally talk to. Like, have been, you know, helpful. Like, hundreds and hundreds of emails and phone calls. You know, tell me how much, they, you know, we I've helped the community and want to get back and stuff like that. So, it's been... It's as much as it sucks, this whole thing has happened. I feel a lot of love, and I'm, I'm really fortunate that I've got to, you know, kind of see where I am in, in the community and the world. That, uh, that you, you know, the things that I'm doing are, are are coming back to me. You know. Well, Justin, that kind of response from the community reflects on you, and it says something about you and about your club. Now, these interviews are a lot like MMA fights. They're a lot of fun, and they go by way too quickly. Justin, we must wrap up our interview. However, we wish you the best of luck and success with your gym, and congratulations on your MMA career. Oh, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me. I, I love doing this stuff, so if I need to come up again, please let me know. I'll be right here. Oh, you're always welcome. Thanks again. All right. Have a great night. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to my interview with Justin Bruckman. This is UFC fighter Jason Sago. You are now listening to Martial Arts World Radio with Joseph Clark. Our next interview is brought to you by Kayani Independent Distributor, Daniel Jurege. Kayani is a leading provider of all-natural health and wellness products that provide athletes with faster post-training recovery and energy. Endorsed and used by professional fighters and martial artists, including Josh Tyler, Manny Pacquiao, and even Jackie Chan, you can find out more by reaching out to Daniel at Kayani, that's K-Y-A-N-I, Kayani Health Australia, 
at gmail.com or Skype him at that exact same address, Australia at gmail.com. Bob Wall is a world karate champion with an incredible pedigree of multiple black belts in various disciplines. He was front and center with Chuck Norris, Joe Lewis, and Jean LaBelle during the golden era of competitive martial arts. He co-starred in three Bruce Lee films and several films with his good friend, Chuck Norris. Bob, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. It's good to hear your voice again. Well, it's good to have you back again. You're a regular. Well, that's a good thing, since I'm on with the greatest interviewer in all of Canada and probably North America and possibly the world. Oh, wow. Great interview, by the way. Congratulations. Well, I do appreciate that. Now, you had we had an interesting discussion that you had shared with me, and I know you've had this discussion with Chuck Norris as well. And it had to do with martial arts being part of a being part of school curriculum or being part of physical education curriculum. It is in other countries, some other countries, Asian countries, it is mandatory training. How do you feel about that? You know, Chuck and I both believe that it should be mandatory training because you know we've had so many of these uh, ridiculous idiot left wingers taking prayer out of school, taking prayer off of, I mean, you know, after Kibo because he's playing, you know, after a play in football, you know, we need the things that give people respect, and we need things in school that make young people feel good about themselves. And as Francois Penelope said, if a person at peace with himself is at peace with the fellow man. So we can go to, say, these violent protesters at a Donald Trump rally, they have no respect for themselves or for Donald Trump or for Hillary Clinton or anybody else. What happened to free speech? What happened to respect? And so that's what Chuck Norris and I believe, my good friend after 52 years, it's about respect. It's about feeling good about yourself because if you feel good about yourself, you feel good about your fellow men. It's all this hate and this lack of civil discourse mm-hmm. that's creating so much havoc on society. So we need to start training these youngsters early on with the huge advantages of respect. I rule with the greatest martial artist in my lifetime at 77 and have, you know, well over 65 years of martial arts training. And the greatest, toughest people on earth, men and women, are the most respectful, kindest, nicest people. Just don't grab their mates, church. <laughs> don't threaten their children and do not mess with their pet. Then you're going to see a side of them you're probably going to die for. But short of that, they're the nicest people. It's the bullies. It's the mid-range mm-hmm. ding-dongs who don't feel good about themselves. So that's why we, Chuck Norris and I feel so passionate. And he's proved it for over 20 years in Texas. He's got thousands of students. And what started as Kick Drugs Out of America now shortened to Kickstart because he believes he's kickstarting these people for life. So, yes, I'm very passionate. I believe martial arts should be mandatory in school from the beginning to the end. So, Bob, when you were running your own school and when you and Chuck were were, uh, partners in running your schools, before you would promote a student, was it as much about them demonstrating certain aspects of their character as it was about their prowess as a martial artist before they could get graduated to another belt? More so. More so, because... We fail people at red belt, which is equal to brown belt in some systems, you know, their test before black belt. And they had many times we'd see amazing physical skills, but no character. You're beating up smaller people, little people, uh, immoral acts, drug use, uh, disgracing or disrespecting your country, your parents, all these basics that are important becoming a good human being. So absolutely, yes, we would fail them a lot, a lot quicker for character issues and physical deficiencies, because they can all be overcome. Now, you were a world champion martial artist. You had full contact karate. Uh, You're a pioneer in full contact, in fact. When you were fighting against these tough competitors and competing for world titles, would you see aspects of character that came out made a difference in those competitors and some of those people who that who you were fighting uh, in those situations? Oh, absolutely. The best of the best always have great characters. The Chuck Norris's, the Pat Burleson's, the Jim Harrison's. I mean, 
uh, you could just go on and on. The Benny Ortiz's two kids just go on and on and on and on. The greatest, greatest martial artists, the greatest competitors were always the nicest people, followed the rules, had great character. And yes, so, so they, I've been blessed because I've gotten to know the greatest martial artists on the planet, you know, uh, in, in my 60 plus years in the martial arts. And it just overwhelms you when you realize that the best are the best as human beings. Yes. Speaking of which, I mean, you've been uh, friends with Chuck Norris now a good portion of your life. You've been business partners with Chuck Norris. He was an incredible competitor. Has he been an inspiration for you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, we became partners, and I was a judo black belt. I was Gene LaBelle's black belt. Uh, I'm more of a grappler, street fighter kind of a guy. And uh, we start punching and kicking relatively late to my martial arts career. So in 61, 62, that was four or five years after I started, um, I was starting to punch and kick. So when I met Carlos, Chuck's real name, as you know, Chuck's a nickname, um, he's half Indian, half Cherokee Indian, half Irish. And although he doesn't look like a Carlos with green eyes and blonde hair, but uh, yeah, he was always an inspiration because I started watching him in 1964, and he lost a big tournament up in Seattle. And he took three students with him. They all won. <laughs> in fact, one of them, one of his red belts, beat Mike Stone, uh, who's never been defeated in black belt competition. And I asked Mike, I said, what you lost? And he said, well, that was a grand champion. Oh, I, oh, I get it. Okay. There are a lot of people that want to change the facts. Pretty sure. hard to do. I watched how, how amazingly kind he was in losing and, 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 and how encouraging he was and complimentary to his three students who won. And, uh, but it was point fighting, you know, and he really didn't lose, but he had to accept it. And uh, that was one of the many reasons that we started forcing, focusing on full contact and ultimately kickboxing and ultimately MMA, because if you could take it out of the judges' hands, you know, uh, that was a much healthier thing. But, yeah, I watched him down. I watched him up. I watched him win his first title in 1965 against Ron Martini. And he was equally gracious in winning as losing. Chuck Norris is just one of the best humans ever put on this planet. He's just a, a kind, intelligent, moral, godly, Christian man. He's just such a good man. I've been so blessed. But we became partners. Part of the glue was that we were egoless. I knew he was a better karate guy, which is what we were selling, and he knew I was a better businessman. And so we never had a contract except an oral one. Okay, Carlos, you're the boss on the mat because you're the better karate guy. And and, and trust me, (laughs) I spent over 50 years trying to get as good as him, and I was always uh, from two feet to one inch behind. Mm -hmm. He's just an amazing martial artist. But character... Oh my gosh, this guy is just amazing. He's a tremendous yeah. man, and I'm so proud of him and happy for his success financially and in his life. Now, as a friend of Bruce Lee's, for example, you would have seen this as well in how he ran his school, because I understand it. He would teach anybody of any race at a time when a lot of martial arts schools were quite racist. Was that correct? Oh, absolutely. It was huge racism. I mean, I myself... At 15, I started going up, I was in San Jose, California, I'd fly out to San Francisco, which is 30 or 40 minutes away at that time, and I, 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 all I knew was judo and kung fu at that time, wrestling, judo, and kung fu, because of Teddy Roosevelt being a black belt in judo, we got a lot of press, but I found at least 15 coons, uh, Chinese kung fu schools, oh, him, no, him, no, him, gone, no, here. And years later, when I explained to Bruce, he said, oh, yeah, 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 you know, that was prejudice. You're white, but that was prejudice. Now you know how blacks in America feel, and maybe some Asians. He said, they, Chinese, do not teach non-Chinese. And so he said that was just their form of prejudge. But his first student was black. His best friend was Japanese. He was one-eighth German. And so he understood, as Carlos Chuck Norris understood, racism up close and personal. Yes. You're Eurasian or you're half-Indian. And they got it. They got it early and overcame it. And uh, 
and became brilliant people. And Bruce, I just loved him. He was another wonderful, fabulous human, kind, brilliant, funny, bright, hardworking. I mean, he just had it all. Now, Bob, we're going to wrap up. It's a short one here today, but I can't thank you enough for joining us as you did. This has been an interview with martial arts legend Bob Wall. Bob, thank you. It's been my pleasure. You really do a great show. I love your perspective on your interviews. The one you did with Vinny Arquitas was outstanding, but all of them are. You ask them very interesting questions, and you get into a perspective. I'm very proud of you and happy to be here. Oh, thanks very much. It's a privilege to have you on the show, and we look forward to having you back real soon. Thanks again, Bob. Blessings, Joseph Clark. This has been an interview with legend Bob Wall. Hi, I'm Don the Dragon Wilson, and you're listening to Joseph Clark at Martial Arts World Radio. This week's inspirational quote is from Muhammad Ali and goes as follows. Don't count the days. Make the days count. Muhammad Ali, 1942 to 2016. Our last interview is brought to you by Kayani Independent Distributor Daniel Jurej. Kayani is a leading provider of all-natural health and wellness products that provide athletes with faster post-training recovery and energy. Endorsed and used by professional fighters and martial artists including Josh Tyler, Manny Pacquiao, and Jackie Chan, you can find out more by reaching out to Daniel at Kayani Health Australia at gmail.com or feel free to Skype him at that exact same address to keep it simple. Skype him at Kayani Health Australia at gmail.com. Michael Masuda is the founder and president of the Martial Arts History Museum located in Burbank, California. He was a contributing editor to Black Belt Magazine and Inside Kung Fu Magazine for over 20 years. Michael is the author of four books. He has been practicing martial arts for 45 years. Here to talk to us today about the world-famous, one-of-a-kind martial arts history museum is Michael Masuda. Michael Matsuda, welcome to Martial Arts World Radio. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me here. And my compliments to you, the Martial Arts History Museum. What an incredible contribution to martial arts culture. Please tell us more about the museum. Oh, I tell you, it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> well, the, you know, the museum is, uh, started in 1999. We began first as a traveling exhibit, and then uh, we uh, landed a location in 2006 in Santa Clarita, and from there, we relocated to our current location in uh, the city of Burbank in 2010. So this is our 18th year, and uh, the Martial Arts History Museum has been in existence, and this is our sixth year in our current location. Well, congratulations. And what was the motivation for you at the beginning that got the initial seed planted so that you would start this endeavor? Well, it's, it's a long story. I'll make it short for you. Um, you know, I, myself, I started the martial arts in the 60s, and, and you know, I, I got to grow up around the greatest guys in the world, you know. Uh, I've known Benny Ukitas when he was, you know, a teenager, and, and all these guys, uh, Chuck Norris was just a competitor, and all these guys before any notoriety came. And li- living during that period, uh, back in the 60s, you know, you, you got to see the, the evolution of the martial arts, and I thought that was fantastic. And so when I got uh, around college age, I decided to uh, get a journalism degree and write for the magazines, which I did. And I wrote for Inside Kung Fu and Black Belt for a number of years. And then I started my own magazine called Martial Art Magazine. I did that for about four or five years. And um, it wasn't doing what I wanted to do. I wanted to focus more on history than uh, tournaments. And that's what I was focusing on too much, tournament ads. So when someone offered to purchase from me, I did sell it, and I wanted to focus on history. And I said, you know, a museum would be a nice way to keep our history alive. There isn't one out there. There's never been one out there. And uh, I went back to school for another 10 years to learn how to do museums. And once I got all that knowledge behind me and marketing courses and business and film, I decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and go forward with it. We began as a traveling exhibit, wanted to see if there was enough people interested in supporting the museum. And once we did, I said, okay, we'll start a museum. And this way we can preserve our history, our past, and many generations from now can learn about the sacrifices that so many people made 
and the influence that um, Asian culture and history has had on American history. Well, Michael, what an accomplishment. And, you know, when you refer back to the 60s and even the 70s, kind of that golden era of martial arts, in some of my previous interviews with uh, gentlemen like Bob Wall or Mike Stone or Michael DePasquale Jr., one of the things that I asked them commonly is, at the time, you, you were going through a golden era, but did you know at the time that it was a golden era? So I'd like to bounce that question off of you, Michael. Did you realize at the time that there was a real movement happening, or was it just something that you realized after the fact? Uh, you know, it was kind of a mix of things. Um, you got to see these guys during this time period, and you got to see, uh, you know, the beginnings. Uh, you know, I was still a kid in the 60s, you know, uh, and so I caught the, the, the Chuck Norris was already competing, and those guys were already competing and getting out there. And so I came in uh, a little bit past the blood and guts, just at the blood and guts, the end of the blood and guts era, you know, they call it. And uh, so I got to, but I got to see all these guys competing. And I thought it was just amazing. So much great competition, you know, to see all these guys out there and, and Benny fighting and Bill Wallace fighting and Don Wilson fighting. And, and you just didn't realize how great it was but you savored in how wonderful it was. So I thought it was a tremendous time. I didn't realize it was going to be such an iconic time, but I, I savored the, 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 the development of everything and how it sprouted. It's like when, when the Model T happened. You know, I wasn't there then. <laughs> but when the Model T happened, all of a sudden the, the car era started to take off and everybody started making cars. Same thing in the martial arts. The 60s really came, but it was the 70s that, you know, that – the late 60s and the 70s that really started catapulting things and the 80s and that whole time period you got to be part of. And it was really exciting to watch. So I really enjoyed that. And can you give me some examples of some of the, the uh, professionals who've given you support in the endeavor of the museum, perhaps some world champions or some cinema stars and memorable names or recognizable names who've helped contribute and support the museum? You know, we're very thankful for the support we have at the museum. Um, you know, this museum is really built on so many of the little people rather than the big stars like Chuck Norris or, you know, Jet Li or Jackie Chan. It is the small little people that have come along, you know, martial arts instructors, not, not movie stars, who have really supported the museum like Ellen Horn. Uh, he's a, a karate guy, but he's also head of Disney. He's helped the museum. Uh, we've had fighters like Don Wilson and Cynthia Rothrock and Ben Ukitas help us out, do exhibits for us, do seminars for us. Richard Bustillo's done seminars and donated all the money to the museum. You know, we've had a lot of these, these fighters come and help us out and be part of the museum, uh, either at our conventions or at uh, special events or workshops or something like that. Like our Camacho has been a big help to the museum. And many other people have come along the way, Eric Lee, James Liu. You know, all those guys have, have come along the way and continually help us out, Kathy Long, all those guys. And I'm very grateful for that. You know, I've gotten the chance to know everybody like Kathy and them when they were just getting in the ring. And Don when he was just getting in, Bill when he was fighting out there. And, and to, they got to know me because I was a writer for the magazine all that time. So they got to know me, and I got to know them. And when I started this venture, they were all happily on board to help me out because they already knew me. You know, we have such such a similar path, Michael, because I got started. I mean, I was involved in film and television and radio for some time. But the doors opened for me within that community when I wrote a couple of books. And one of the books, 21st Century Perspectives on Martial Arts, I was in town in, in Los Angeles interviewing many of the names that you just spoke of, right? Don Wilson and Benny the Jet Yukitas and Cynthia Rothrock. And, and one of the things that I found is they're so incredibly supportive. And then it almost, from that point, honeycombed out because then they open doors for you and they introduce you to people. So I can certainly relate to what you're saying. And, and I'm sure you'll agree, based on your experience with the museum and, and my experience with this radio show, that the true splendor of the journey are all these neat people and friends and acquaintances that you make along the way, the relationships that you form. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, people always ask me, what's my favorite part of the museum? And there's many great things in the museum. You know, by the way, everything is donated to the museum 100%, you know, everything. Matter of fact, we just got Alvis's uniform I'm looking at right now. They're just donated to us. 
and um, <laughs> people donate all the time. But but my favorite part of the museum is the journey. You know, the journey because we got to meet so many great people, and not not just you know well known competitors and so on, martial arts instructors or martial arts enthusiasts or fans, and those are the people who really help build the museum and support us and get behind us. So I'm very very thankful for that. Now, I mentioned that Rob Moses, who was one of my uh, earlier guests on the show, he he recommended that I reach out to you. But now that you mentioned Art Camacho, Art Camacho also spoke very highly of you and at the museum, by the way, and I just wanted to share that with you. Ah, he's a great guy. Yeah, matter of fact, Art is uh, one of the board members of the museum. He he came in after about our third year and helped uh, the museum get its feet wet, you know, and get on there and, and bring things to the museum and really catapult it out there. So he was a major factor in the museum. Would you share with us some of the places in the world where some of your guests come who come to visit the museum? You know, I used to have a, a map here, and I p- put a little pin on each place all over the world. I filled the entire map, <laughs> literally. You know, we get people from Russia, from China, from Turkey, you name it, every single country has come here. Be that as it may, we're right down the street from the airport. But they've they've come from every country to come. And, you know, because there's Kung Fu and Iran and, and, and Africa and Jiu-Jitsu and Brazil and, you know, Yugoslavia and everywhere. So they come here, and this is the only home for the martial arts. This is it. This is the only museum. This will ever be the only museum, I can tell you that. But it's the only home, and they come and they relive their past, and they look toward the future here, and they really enjoy it. So we've had everybody from every part of the world come here. Well, that was going to be one of my questions, which was, are you aware of if there are any other martial art history museums anywhere in the world, or is it unique? Uh, No, this is the only one. Now, you know, granted, in China, they have museums toward Kung Fu, and Japan, you know, they have museums that focus on samurai and karate and different things like that. You know, that's that's all out there, and that's part of other museums. But this is the only one by itself, and it's the only one focusing on the martial arts as a whole. Our main focus is Asian arts right now because of space availability, but when we expand, we'll add a lot more into here. But we are the only museum, period. You know, it's a hard job. I cannot tell you how hard it is. And we've invested so much money and so much education learning how to do this. You know, some people have tried to put stuff together and call it a museum, and it's gone within a year because there's so much business and marketing background behind it. And then how do you preserve the museum stuff and how to display it, you know, the type size, the attention span, uh, the flow of the museum, you know, that whole marketing plan, uh, tours and kids and, you know, everything, every aspect of the museum, how not to make it a who's who and make it based on culture and history. And that's what we've done, and that's why the museum has been a success for 18 years. So um, we are the only one, period, and I can tell you right now there will not be another because of the amount of investment involved in it. You know, they've been trying to do the Bruce Lee Museum for a long time, but, you know, it takes a lot of work. It really does. And if you don't have the education behind you, you can just be a, a storefront and put stuff on your wall. You know, it doesn't make you a museum. You need to be able to, to work with the community and work with the, the public and work with kids and tours and all that. So we've gone to great lengths to, to do that. And, and I'm very glad that after 150-plus years of the martial arts in America, we finally have a museum dedicated to the martial arts that people enjoy. Oh, it just sounds great. You you referenced earlier that you have uh, Elvis Presley's gi, I take it, or training uniform. What else can we expect when we visit the museum? Well, you know, you got some really good stu- cool stuff. You got you have a few old things. Now, our goal is to focus on both old and new. We want to make it, you know, a little bit touchable so the kids can touch it. So some of the stuff is not that old. But we do have a couple hundred-year-old items. We have a uh, one of uh, uh, Furukoshi's students' uniform here, a judo uniform, 100 years old, a kendo uniform, 100 years old. And then we also have um, stuff, uh, Chinese lions, uh, the drums from the parade. You know, we have um, a lot of uh, uh, Cynthia Rothrock's outfit here. We have Leo Fong's out here. We saw Kaiwala's outfit. Um, you know, uh, Tino Tiolo Sega's uniform here, Jimmy H. Wu's uniform, Arkwai Wong's uniform. You know, we got 
a lot of Pioneers uniform here, which is really nice to have that. You know, and uh, we have Al Dacascas uniform here and, and Eric Lee's uniform here. You know, when they use uniform here, that's just in uniforms and artifacts. We have a lot of the weapons and stuff like that, but we also have a lot of stuff for film and movie. You know, we have the actual headband from the Karate Kid, too. We have the actual coat worn by Ralph Macchio. You know, we have the, the gopher chucks from Kung Pao movie. You know, so we got some really fun stuff here that people enjoy from Big Trouble in Little China to the Cobra Kai and uh, the Karate Kid and uh, the shield from Mortal Kombat and uh, Hawaiian Lua, you know, weapons and anime history and all that. So, you know, it's a fun, uh, well-rounded look at history and how uh, martial arts played a key role in American history and how that influenced the films and influenced today's MMA fighting, you know, from taking it from kickboxing all the way to K1 and so on and all the way into the mixed martial arts that are so popular today. You know, we even have Chuck Liddell shorts here. <laughs> Chuck Liddell shorts, terrific. So you really, yeah, you're, you really are bringing it up to modern day and bridging any of the gaps. And that's really exciting, isn't it? You know, going from the point karate era to the full contact karate era, which, which you know, transitioned into kickboxing and, and Benny the Jet and Don the Dragon's legacy in that sport and then how that evolved into MMA. How far back oh, yeah. do you go in history and the museum? You know, one of the things I, I, I enjoy talking about is the transition from point fighting to uh, today's mixed martial arts. Uh, you were mentioning you have a lot of uh, viewers that do that. You know, during that time period, I was really happy to be part of the martial arts and during the 70s when um, Bill Wallace was a point fighter and then making the transition to full contact. You know, guys like Cecil People, who I train with and other guys, going into that era from point fighting into full contact, what a disaster that was. <laughs> you know, it was the biggest disaster. It was a great idea, you know, taking point fighting and going into the ring. But a lot of the guys never knew how to train for a ring format. You know, they were getting tired because after a few minutes, because they weren't used to the calisthenics, you know, running around and punching and hitting. They were used to being a point called and waiting for your point, you know, resting a few seconds. So it was such a disaster. People didn't know how to train. They didn't know how to tie their hands. They were getting knocked in the face that they'd never been knocked in the face before. So we saw the emergence of a new era, kickboxing or full contact karate, and the rules were all over the place. And Richard Senator Alatori banned kickboxing until we got new rules and to see the rules finally come to fruition and then to finally see kickboxing reestablish itself through Benny Ukitas and other guys and then finally get recognized and then that evolution from kickboxing into uh, MMA. So that was a very exciting time in the martial arts. So I was really happy to actually be training there and knowing Cecil Peoples and Benny right at that time period and watching them train and watching them fight. You know, I got to cover Benny's fights, so that was really fun for the magazine. That was really fun. So it was a great time, a great transition. So sorry, that wasn't your question, but I had to throw that in. <laughs> no, actually, that, that that was really interesting. And and when I've spoken to uh, both Benny Arquitas and, and Bill Wallace, for example, they both said very quickly, you know, you know, g- going from point karate into uh, full contact and kickboxing in the ring, they realized very, very quickly that for upper body strikes and punches, they had to train like a boxer. So they was they were relearning certain skills and then and then applying it to you know similar strategies as as uh, point karate, but. Definitely, uh, you know, the cardio and the ability to, to stand up and, and Western box was critical if they were going to make it in that sport. Oh, yeah. You know, Benny and them really introduced it. You know, Benny was a boxer beforehand, so he was already used to that. Yeah. But to watch these guys go out of breath in the second round, you know, it was it was an interesting time period. You know, it really was. So it, it was it was wonderful see, to see that transition to add boxing and you know, to add all these unique movements that you're going to have to readjust it for the ring. And to see that finally take off and evolve was a great sight. And then to see the women, you know, Graciela Casillas and Lily Rodriguez and those guys get their feet wet and start getting out there, you know, and, and doing full contact karate kickboxing for women. And to see that established, that was really, really a nice venture to see. Now, Michael, would you tell us a little bit about the Martial Arts History Museum Hall of Fame? 
Well, you know, there are, are many halls of fame, as you know. <laughs> yeah, doing, doing the martial arts since the 60s, you, you've seen them all. <laughs> you know, um, I was just talking to Mike Stone about his um, uh, Golden Fist Awards he used to have many years ago. But, you know, there are so many halls of fame. And, you know, I, I am not the one to put down anybody's hall of fame. I just don't do that. I always believe people should receive recognition, and I'm very happy people are receiving recognition for the things they do in the martial arts. What we've done, though, for the museum is to create something as a singular thing. Uh, we wanted people to be looked at because this is a martial arts history museum, the people in, inside the Hall of Fame to be historic, to, to do something that changed the history of America or the world. You know, people like Ak Wai Wong opened the doors to non-Chinese. You know, Benny Ukitas, he revamped kickboxing and literally saved it because of adding boxing and all that to that. You know, some iconic people who have made an historic impact on history and changed it for the better. You know, there are many great people out there, fantastic martial artists, some of the greatest fighters you've ever seen and point fighters and competitors and forms competitors, and they're all amazing and wonderful. But there are a few of them that made that historic impact and changed history forever, like Eric Lee, who's one of the first, earliest Kung Fu guys in tournaments, you know, Al Dukaskis and Eric Lee. These are historical achievements. So that's what the Museum's Hall of Fame is about, historical achievements, what they did to not just change their environment, but change the entire martial arts community for the better. And that's what the uh, Museum's Hall of Fame is. Well, Michael, I have to congratulate you on the museum and on the Hall of Fame, and thank you for joining us today. And for our listeners who are on their devices, where shall we direct them on the web to look you up in case they have any more information they'd like to get about the Hall of Fame? Uh, yes, um, you can look at uh, the Martial Arts History Museum website at mamuseum.com or contact us at 818-478-1722. We're in the city of Burbank, 2319 West Magnolia Boulevard, the city of Burbank. We are a nonprofit organization, so 100% of the funds come in go to help the museum. So we are completely supported by donations and support from the community. Michael, thank you once again for joining us today and talking to us about the Martial Arts History Museum. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. This has been an interview with Michael Masuda, president of the Martial Arts History Museum. Be sure to check us out at www.mawradio.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube by following Martial Arts World Radio. I'm Joseph Clark, and thank you for joining us. Martial Arts World Radio is the official radio show and podcast of The Factory, Martial Arts Boxing and Fitness at 450 Matheson Boulevard East, Unit 44, Mississauga, Ontario. Check us out at www.factorygrindgym.com.